You are listening to the Good Shepherd Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Our mission at Good Shepherd is to proclaim the gospel so that all people will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. One of the main ways we believe that we are accomplishing our mission is through the proclaimed word. We believe that the preached word creates and sustains the church. Our desire is to preach Christ crucified for you, which means we hope that Jesus is the substance and hero of every sermon and that Jesus is preached into the places of sin and brokenness into our hearts. We thank you for joining us and hope that you will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. All right, turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 3. Or if you came in and received a fancy journal, you can turn to page 20 in your fancy pants journal. We're kind of uh, chopping up chapter 3 a little bit. If you remember from two weeks ago, uh, there was an account, a story about a lame man who was given healing by the power of Jesus. And really, we have a sermon this week that's in light of that healing. Uh, we have some, some questions or some, at least some, some interesting glances by the people who are witnessing this event. And so the Apostle Peter then is going to preach a sermon in light of this healing. And you might even recognize some very similar language from Acts chapter 2, Uh, If you remember the day of Pentecost, which is the day when the Spirit came, there were a lot of fireworks and uh, kind of bright lights associated with that event. And then there was a a sermon by the Apostle Peter given right after that event. And this is another one of those fireworks moments. Here is a man who was lame from birth. Uh, The whole town knew uh, that people actually, uh, uh, in some symbiotic relationship with this man uh, who, who needed him, um, they, they knew this man very closely, and yet he was healed instantly, instantaneously. And so with the fireworks, out of the fireworks of this event comes another sermon from Peter. And you'll actually recognize uh, some very similar language, although I think we can make some, some good distinctions uh, from this sermon today. And boys, I'm not seeing the, uh, the clicker. So I have four points. I'll just point at you. Is that okay for the, for the PowerPoint? All right, but let's go ahead and read our text for tonight. This is Acts chapter 3, verses 11 through 26, the, the rest of the chapter. While he, the healed lame man, clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are all witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, 
But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that this Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out and times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that, uh, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to, the, to that, the, uh, listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and to those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophet, the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. This is God's word for us this evening. As I was studying this passage this week, I, uh, I had this really interesting realization kind of for the first time. Uh, and maybe, it's, again, this is kind of maybe something I knew in the back of my mind, but I really stopped to ponder it for a little bit, that functionally speaking, I, and I think we all, uh, we, we tend to worship many gods. Uh, we, we, ter- we tend to not just worship one God, but we tend to, functionally speaking, worship many gods. And I don't think this is just, uh, this is just a 21st century Western American uh, thing. I think this is actually, it's within the heart of man to be given into what we would just simply call idolatry. We worship several things that aren't the one true God, and it leads us to worship many things that we try to make God. And in so doing, because we are idolatrous people who worship many gods, we all are both ignorant and willful deniers of Jesus. And I think just thinking through the nature of what is sin, I think that we could, we could easily say it's that we are, in one sense, seeking to be God ourselves, and we are denying Jesus's deity, his godship in, in our lives. And so we're left then, if we're going to denounce Jesus and his salvation, then we then have to take up our own ability to save ourselves. And so really, our idolatry is kind of this hunt for salvation in a variety of different ways. And it certainly comes up in this story where Peter is uh, addressing the people of Israel. Obviously, there was some level of um, uh, maybe body language Uh, or something that implied that Peter had something going on that these men, these men of Israel, couldn't get for themselves. This is why he says, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety, we have made this man well? And there was something inherent to the way that the Jewish uh, people that were, were around this scene we're looking at, at Peter and John saying, man, these, these guys have, have something going on. They're, they're powerful or they're so pietous. They're so devoted to God that they're able to do amazing things like give healing. They're able to reverse the brokenness of this world. They have some sort of power beyond normal human power to do 
godlike things. What is it about Peter and John that is so different? And I, though it might not be power or piety for us, I think we often seek for things that will mend our own brokenness in our world. Things like control. Maybe things like recreation or fun. Maybe even something that would simply just make us feel good again. Maybe it's this idea of just being right. Maybe it's having the right kind of theology or ideology or philosophy that'll fix the things in our world that we need fixed. Maybe it's some uh, level of paying attention to the cultural narrative. Maybe wealth. Maybe this idea of self-worth. If I could just get enough of these kinds of things in my life, I can use these things to kind of mend my brokenness. And so you, kind of like me, if you're honest, I'll be happy to be honest with you tonight, I often live my, my life disappointed. And because I'm disappointed, I often feel exhausted. And I think one of the reasons for that is because I, I worship way too many gods. Whether it's power or piety or control or feeling good or having my own sense of rightness or having my own kind of wealth or self-worth, these are, these are things that I can kind of bring to myself to kind of fix my brokenness. And so I look at people who have their life together and I think, what do they have that I seem to just can't get for myself? And so I live my life on the hunt. And because I feel like I'm constantly hunting and constantly moving from God to God or idol to idol, I feel exhausted. And you can imagine the Jewish people going from one thing to the next to the next to the next, just like you and me. And they're looking at Peter and John saying, I know this lame man. I know him from birth. How is he healed? What kind of power or piety or what, what do they have that I don't have? We talked about this last time. It's amazing, Peter's kind of deflection. He's like, don't look at me. That, you want power or piety? Listen, I, I am not the one to talk to when it comes to pietous moments in the Christian faith. I'm pretty sure I was that guy, the one guy who denied, uh, who denied Jesus three times. Pretty, pretty blatantly. I'm stuck in the record of history as that guy who did that thing at that critical moment. Don't look at us. It's not because we have power or piety that this happened. There's only one way. But in order to get these things, in order to fix the brokenness of our world by ourselves, the one thing we have to do is we have to reject Jesus. And if we have to reject Jesus, then we have to also get to work. And that's what the Jewish people at this time were wrestling with. That's what you and I wrestle with. If we're going to deny Jesus, we got to get to work. If we're going to get to work, well, then we might just end up frustrated or exhausted. So tonight, I just simply want to look at Peter's sermon here. Peter's going to preach a sermon, and I think he's going to pull out some, some uh, four things for us to see. Uh, two things about um, our own idolatry, and then two things about Jesus uh, that, I that I hope will actually give us hope in the middle of our brokenness. The first thing I think Peter draws out for us is that uh, these people and their idolatry, it was blinding. It was blinding. This is, uh, comes from verses 11 through 13. Their idolatry was blinding. If we're giving up. It's not... There we go. All right, there we go. Just had to dance a little bit with it. 
Four things from Peter's sermon. Their idolatry, the people's idolatry was blinding. While he clung to John and Peter, all the people utterly astounded, ran together to them in a portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant. You jump down to 16, and by faith in his name has made him strong. Faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. Their idolatry was blinding because they couldn't see the miraculous. They couldn't see the miraculous. Remember, we talked about two weeks ago that um, it's funny how there was, it's not really funny, it's actually really sad, that there was a lame man who wasn't asking the people, hey, do you know a doctor? He was asking for money. He was asking for something that was way beyond, way below his actual need. It's, it, we tend to do the same thing as well, and, and our own idolatry can be that blinding to us as well. They, but these people here, they're looking at this lame man who hasn't been able to walk at all, and they're wondering, how can I get some of that power and some of that piety? How can I, how can I get that? How can I, how can I work that? And what they don't recognize is that a miracle... A, a, a miracle of God's gift of grace has happened right in front of them. An, an absolute uh, uh, medical miracle has been worked here, and they're sitting here, man, I wonder how I can get some of that power and piety. I wonder how I can get some of that magic sauce for, for my life. What they took as merit is stuff that God did by miracle. And they're thinking, man, if I can just if I can just be powerful enough, I might be able to do some of this stuff too. Or if, you know what, if I'm just pietous enough, if I just can really come through on my devotions for this week, go a solid seven for seven, if I could give my church attendance just a perfect score, then maybe some of my own brokenness in my own life can be fixed as well. Not, they, weren't, they weren't looking to, to God at this moment. They were looking very horizontal. They're even looking at Peter and John saying, how can I get some of that sauce that you seem to have? Can you bottle that stuff for me so I can put it on, on my rice and chicken? I, I want some of that stuff. Peter and John said, don't, don't look at me, man. This is, this is a miracle. This is the God of our fathers here. This is, this is the, one, you know, the same God that led us out of Egypt when we were trapped. You remember that guy? Yeah, like, that's who we're talking about here. We're not, we're not talking about having your devotions this week. We're talking about the one who created all things and suspended planets in space. We're talking about that God. He's, he's the one who made this man whole, not us. So if you're going to ask what sort of things you need from us, we, we're, we're going to have to go to a different level here. We're, we're going up. Because he's the only one who has this kind of power. But their idolatry was blinding. They were on the hunt. Remember, they, they were the ones who thought that they, they had some sort of salvation at stake. And so they constantly had to be looking. How do you get that? What, how, how can I get some of that? What's the trick? What's the secret sauce of your life? How, how, can, how can I be a part of that? Are you, are you my connection in? Peter and John are like, no, man, this, this, is the, this is the God of our fathers here we're talking about. They took as merit what God did by a miracle. But secondly, their rejection was thorough. Their reject, rejection of Christ was absolutely thorough. And Peter is actually going to pull this out in, in the sermon. 
the God of Abraham, the, this is verse 13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the, from the dead. The rejection of Jesus was absolutely thorough. It couldn't have been a stiffer rejection. First of all, they were the ones who literally crucified Jesus. And remember from chapter 2, uh, verse 23 and through 36, remember in this first sermon, Peter twice points out, not, not the Romans, not the Roman soldiers, not the Jewish mob. He says, you murdered Jesus. You were the ones who crucified him. You and your own personal sin, it is you whom the whole uh, uh, blame for the, the murder of our Savior hangs. And we see this in, in our passage as well. Verse 15, and you killed, you personally, this is a personal pronoun, you killed the author of life. They murdered him, but also they murdered Jesus while steeped in their own hypocrisy. They murdered Jesus while steeped in their own hypocrisy. Look, look what it says there um, in verse, uh, verse 13. Uh, God uh, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over, and you denied in the presence of Pilate. You, it's, it's funny, they, they crucified Jesus, but they didn't, they didn't consult God's authority on this. They didn't, they didn't go to their, to their own God's authority. They went to this secular authority. They, they actually appealed to Roman secular authority on whether or not to, to put this man to death. They weren't crediting God on this. They weren't consulting God. They weren't consulting his, his law at all. They were just saying, they were saying, uh, Pilate, what do you think? Of course, what does Pilate say? Pilate's like, nah, man, this, listen, this guy's innocent. I'm not sure you want to do this. And they're like, no, we, we want to do this, don't we? Don't we, Pilate? Don't we want to do this? And he's like, let me ask my wife. And then, of course, she's like, no, he's innocent. Don't, don't, don't do this. He's like, well, I, I have to. So they go through with it. Even Pilate's like wa- trying to wash his hand of this whole thing. And Pilate's like, I mean, I give you authority to do this, but listen, I, this is not something I'm all about. This, this, seems, this seems like something that you Jews shouldn't, shouldn't be up to. But also they acted totally unjustly in this whole process. Look what, this, look what he says. Um, uh, you denied him in the presence of Pilate uh, when he had decided to release him, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You, you literally exchanged the one who was righteous according to your law. You exchanged him for a known insurrectionist murderer. You, you literally swapped these two in place. Who do you want? Do you want Barabbas, this murderer, or should we crucify Jesus? Which, which one do you want? And they're like, no, give us, give us Jesus. Let, let the murderer go. And in hypocrisy, they, did, they totally denied Jesus. So in order to pursue their own idolatry, in order to pursue their own level of self-salvation, they denied the one whom God had sent, and they denied him in full hypocrisy, totally going against even what they were supposed to be about. So this is bothering me. And they rejected, uh, thirdly, they, they, they rejected their own prophets. 
Look with me, uh, go down to verse 17, and then we'll jump down to the end of the chapter. Verse 17, now, uh, and now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. And the reality is, Peter's being very gracious here because it's true. They, they didn't have all the information. In one sense, they totally did have all the information. But they, they didn't have all the information in the sense of the resurrection hadn't happened yet. And so Peter's actually going to get on to them now because the resurrection has happened. And he goes, now, now you have to do business now. Now you have to deal with real talk now because we have seen the resurrected Savior. So now's the time to do business. We know that before you acted ignorantly. You can't really say that now. now. Now's the real time. Now's the real time to repent and believe. But we know that you acted ignorantly. Uh, Paul would go, actually bring this up as well in Romans 3, that there was a former sins that God overlooked towards a time when his righteousness would be revealed. Same kind of language here. You acted ignorantly for a time. But then verse 22 through 26, uh, Moses said that the Lord God will raise up for you a, a prophet like me from your brothers, and you shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. All the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and from those who came after him also proclaim these very days. And you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying, Abraham, and in, uh, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up this servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your own wickedness. And yet even still, out of all of that, out of all that, Israel decided to reject the Savior. And that's, and that's Peter's point here. His whole point was that their idolatry was blinding them. And that their rejection of him was so thorough and hypocritical. You're like, well, where, where, is, the, where is the hope in this for the people? Well, it's rich. Because remember, when, when Peter preaches the law like this, here, that's, like the, that's like left hook, right hook, here comes the gospel. And an even bigger hook is going to be pronounced, but it's going to be a hook of love and of salvation for these people. But in order to understand the realities of the blessedness of the gospel, they have to be confronted with the realities of their sin. And my friends, it's just, that's, that's the same way it is with you and me. For us to truly understand the, the infinite grace of our Savior, we have to realize how much trouble we were in apart from this grace. Or else we'll continue to run around like we always do, looking for the next thing to save and to bring us healing. And it'll never work. So we have to see our depravity. I remember uh, two weeks ago when we read Ephesians uh, chapter 2, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. And this is, this is the reality with Jesus. Jesus, the way he works, the way Jesus works and the way Jesus does miracles is often not how we tend to present miracles, or at least, or at least how we look for miracles these days. The reality is we're often, looking, we're often looking for the miracle of take my bad and make it good, or take my, take my better and make it best. Take my good and make it great. But in, in there, tucked in there, we still think that we're bringing something to the table, right? I know, okay, Jesus takes my bad and he makes it good, and like, I know, it, I mean, it is kind of bad. I mean, there might be a little bit of goodness tucked in there. But Jesus, I mean, I'm giving you a lot to work with here, Jesus. I mean, I'm giving you a lot to, to, to work your magic with. 
some, somehow tucked in there. We think we have something to offer to God. And Paul is very clear in Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. The picture couldn't be more clear in this, in, in this uh, it's not a metaphor, it's a real story, of this lame man. His legs don't work. People have to pick him up and move him to the temple so that he can beg. That, that's, a, that's a great little scenario if you're a lame person, but the reality is that lame person isn't doing a thing to get to the temple. People have to carry him. That's a very gracious thing to do, but the reality is just because you're asking for money at the temple doesn't mean your scenario is great. And it's the same thing with us. We're nice people, generally speaking. When people cut us off on the road, we don't cuss too much, right? We're pretty good people. But the way Jesus does miracles, the way Jesus does salvation is not from bad to good. It's not even from better to best. It is from dead to alive. It's that contrasting. We could even say it's from darkness to light, but that's even kind of a spectrum. You might even say in the creation narrative that it's from nothing into a, into a full cosmos. We, we might say Jesus works from zero to 100, from death to life. He doesn't work from 5% to 95%. We tend to think, and a lot of our Christianese, we tend to think that, like, really, you know, if I could just, again, I'm at a solid five days a week of devotional life, and if I could just get seven out of seven, I'll be, I'll be good, and my problems will, will go. And that's, that's a little tongue-in-cheek. Obviously, we don't, we don't, none of us are saying that, and there are things greater in our lives than that. But we do tend to think in ways that I'm doing pretty okay, and I just need a couple more Jesus-y things to get over the hump, and then I will have healing. And Jesus says, I don't work like that. My miracles are way bigger than that. My salvation is way grander than that. I work from dead to alive. I work from zero to 100. When you can't offer anything to God, that's when Jesus and he, he comes through and offers everything to you for free. When you were dead in your trespasses and sins, Jesus comes and makes you alive together with him. By grace, you have been saved. And we see it here. And this is the good news for us. Let's look at this good news. Though our, though our idolatry is blinding and our rejection of Jesus is often very thorough, and certainly it, it was in our own sinful nature, the reality is Jesus' suffering allows us to see clearly. Jesus' suffering allows us to see clearly. So though our idolatry is blinding, Jesus comes in and he allows us to see very clearly. It's amazing the titles that Peter gives in his sermon here. And you, you, you have to tend to think, like, and maybe even some of the, the commentators that I read were, were pointing this out, that cer certainly Peter, Peter couldn't have literally preached this perfect of a sermon. When you, when you look at the, the language of this, you see a lot of the contrast. We'll look at some of the contrasts. But you look at some of the titles, you look what, what Peter is actually trying to do in casting contrast between, uh, between just self-salvation projects and the gift of God's grace in Jesus Christ himself. And it's, it's pretty remarkable. Um, but the one thing I want us to look at real quick here, uh, look, at, look at some of the titles that, that Peter gives 
Jesus. And we'll look at some of the, the contrast out of it. In verse 13, uh, it says, God glorified his servant, Jesus. His servant, Jesus. He calls him a servant. Then in verse 14, uh, you denied the holy and righteous one. And then later on in verse 15, the author of life. And these are, these are very important, especially when you realize the contrast to, to what's going on here. The contrast of Jesus as a servant uh, is that these people were looking for exaltation, weren't they? They, were, they? they had in their mindset that the way up in the kingdom of God is up, which is why you don't want to be born with things like broken legs. I mean, like, who sinned, your mom or your dad or you? I mean, that's, you know, we know, we know you're, not, you're not pulling it off, dude. And here we are, we're Jews at the temple, and we're, we're working our way up the ladder. We're climbing the religious ladder up to God. And Peter says, you killed the servant. You, you killed the one who came low. You, you, came, you rejected the one who went lower than any of you. You rejected him. They didn't understand that true exaltation comes through servants. True exaltation is not up in the kingdom, but is is down. God allows us to see. Jesus comes to us not, not in this triumphant, grand exaltation as king of the universe, right? God did not send Jesus into the world to condemn the world like he could have, but so that the world through him might be saved. He came as a humble baby, a servant of us all, even to the point of death, death, death on the cross. And so Jesus is suffering his suffering as a suffering servant allows us to see that exaltation in the way of the kingdom isn't up, but it's down. His suffering allows us to see. But also the second thing, the, the righteous one, the holy and righteous one, the, the unique son of God, the one and only and the righteous one, the truly righteous one. True righteousness is rooted in God's love. The amazing thing, Paul pulls out this amazing aspect of theology for us that, that, is, that is worth spending a lot of time doing some study on. But what does it mean for God to be righteous? Well, Paul says something very interesting. We, we tend to think of righteousness as a firm set of rules and standards that cannot be reached or obtained. And certainly that's tucked in there. But Paul says that there was actually a time when God revealed his righteousness to us. And what did it look like? what was manifested in the face of Jesus Christ who became for us the satisfier of God's wrath or the atonement of God's wrath so that God in his righteousness might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God's righteousness is revealed when in his love, backed by his love, he sends his son not just in justice but in justification of those who have faith. God's heart of righteousness or God's heart of love flows over into his righteousness and what that looks like is Jesus hanging on a cross for us. And Peter is pointing this out. You denied the holy and the righteous one. You, you denied the one that God sent as an overflow of his love to satisfy God's wrath for you. You denied, your, you denied what you're trying to get. You're trying to earn God's love. Well, God sent it to you in the righteousness of Jesus, and you rejected him. He calls him the righteous one and says, see, Jesus' suffering gives you clarity. 
Jesus on a cross gives you clarity. But he also calls him the author of life. And we studied this as we, uh, as we went through John 10, right? The author of life, the one who has life, Jesus, the one who has life within himself. This might even, uh, in another translation, you might even uh, find it the, the fountain of life, like the, the overflowing or the bubbliness of life. The one who with, within himself flows eternal life. This, you, you killed the author of life, which is totally oxymoronic. It's like you, you tried to exalt yourself over the servant. You in your hypocrisy slayed the righteous. But he also says, you in death killed life. He's trying to contrast here. And it's, it, the point is, that was a really dumb move. As if the one who has life within himself, as if you can take his life without him having more life over that death. That's, that's the point of somebody who has life within themselves. You can actually give, he can give his life away only to take it up again, as we saw in John 10. You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are all witnesses. But see, Jesus' suffering allows us to see truly, allows us to see clearly that our entrance into heaven, our entrance into the kingdom doesn't happen by grasping only life. Our entrance into the kingdom happens by grasping death first and allowing somebody's life to be spoken to you from the grave. It's like you being Lazarus, going through that death, being laid in a tomb, and Jesus standing at your tomb saying, Lazarus, come out. That's how the miracle happens. Jesus' suffering allows us to see clearly. But also we see that Jesus' salvation is thorough. Jesus' suffering allows us to see over the blindness of our own idolatry but also Jesus' salvation is so thorough that it supersedes, it goes beyond even our rejection of Jesus. It's bigger, it's better, it's more triumphant than even our rejection. Look what he says uh, in, verse, uh, in, in verse 18. Actually, I'll point out verse 18 because I, I think it's the crux of this whole, uh, this whole gospel element here, verse 18. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, this he fulfilled. It's it's important that Jesus suffered. If you don't see Jesus hanging on a cross, you're not going to be able to see things clearly. And your idolatry is still going to be blinding to you. But if you see that Jesus' suffering is your salvation, well, then you'll, you'll, you'll realize you have it all. You'll realize that your salvation through Jesus is absolutely thorough. Look what he says. Uh, there in verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn back. Well, duh. Give give up your failed way of idolatry. Turn turn away from, from things that don't work. Give them up. Repent and turn back. Why? That your sins may be blotted out. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. His salvation is absolutely thorough. It has import into this life, but into all of eternity. It's totally holistic. As we would say uh, very often around here, Jesus' cry from the cross is absolutely true. It is finished. It's finished now. It'll be finished tomorrow. And it'll be finished for all time. 
Why, why would you turn to Jesus? Well, because through his salvation, your sins are forgiven. And this is true today. This is true today for you. No matter what idolatry you ran after, no matter how exhausted you are, no, how, no matter how disappointed you are with all the brokenness of this world, in Christ, because of his suffering, your sins are forgiven. And if you're not going to believe my words, take his words. This is his body shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Take, eat, all of you. This is him for us. Your sins are forgiven. That means your present sins, your sins of today. That means your past sins, the sins of yesterday, the ones, the ones that you drag into today. Those sins are forgiven in Jesus too. And guess what? Tomorrow, those sins are forgiven too. There is not one sin that exists in our life for those of us who are in Christ where Jesus' blood hasn't fully covered now and all time. Your sin does not keep you from God. It has been paid for in Jesus. All of it. But look, he says also, his presence with you now gives you rest. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That times of refreshing. Um, remember, remember back in, in uh, what is this, chapter 1, I think it was, where Peter says, it's, it, uh, where Jesus says, it's, yeah, it had to have been chapter 1, because Jesus was still on the scene. He says, it's not, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. It's not, it's not for you to know these epochs of time. It's the, same, it's the same usage here, uh, that times of refreshing, that seasons or epochs or uh, times of refreshing may come to you from the presence of the Lord. So it might hint at some sort of futuristic time, but I think, I think what Peter is saying here is that the, the everlasting eschaton, the everlasting time of refreshment may be brought to you here and now. That, that you might know and understand the, the rest that is in Christ Jesus. Uh, I'm not even going to begin to pronounce the Greek word uh, to you for, for, this time, for this word refreshment. Um, but listen, I, f- I found this in a commentary, and I just, the, the R's, the, uh, the alliteration, just like warmed my heart. What is, what is the word um, refreshing in verse 20? What does that Greek word mean? It means four things. Rest, relief, respite, and refreshment. Oh, rest, relief, respite, or refreshment. So that, that's what that word means. Time, times of that, which I'll tell you, to a disappointed and exhausted soul, sounds wonderful. That times of refreshment, of rest, of relief, of respite, may come from the presence of the Lord. And certainly, from his promise in chapter 1, his presence is with us. He has not left us here alone. His spirit is with us. His spirit is with us now. This time of refreshment, of coming from the presence of the Lord, is right here. In fact, I could say this very confidently. There is not a more restful or respiteful or uh, refreshing time in your week than when we gather in Jesus' name, full of the spirit, to partake of the word, through, or take of Christ through the word and through sacrament together. There's, there's no greater time. And that's what this whole thing is about. Come in, weary souls. Come in, disappointed souls. And allow the presence of the Lord to refresh you and to give you rest, to remind you 
it's all finished. There's nothing you're looking for anymore. It's all found right here. Everything your heart wants is found right here. And it also means, praise God, that though we're stuck in this time of already and not yet, are we, do we have the promises of God? Are we waiting on the promises of God? Yes, we're doing all of those things, but there will come a time when he will return as king and his perfect kingdom will be set up and there will be no more sin. And there will be no more crying, oh, that day when free from sinning, I shall see his lovely face full arrayed in blood-washed linen. Man, I'll sing of your sovereign grace that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Rest is coming. Eternal rest is coming. Eternal rest isn't now. We have the presence of the Lord to give us rest, but an eternal rest is not for now. So the rest the rest that we feel and the reprieve from the, from the woes of this world that we feel week in and week out, it pushes us towards going to the lost, right? It pushes us outward and says there's actually much work to be done. But it's, it's not for acceptance of all that God is. It's from acceptance. We don't, we don't have to go and seek to achieve anything We're simply going as agents of God's grace, as simple ambassadors of good news. We're not out there looking for anything. We're out there sharing everything. It's a big difference. This is the one. Peter wants us to know that idolatry is so blinding and that our rejection because of our sin is so thorough and yet, and yet, Jesus' suffering still allows us to see things clearly. And even though we have fully rejected him, he has not rejected us. In fact, it's just the opposite. He has come to us. He has died our death. He has taken on our suffering, and his salvation is absolutely thorough. And it casts us into life, both here and forever. So my friends, repent of your idolatry. Turn, turn back from that. Don't, don't go those ways. Don't, don't, don't end up going ways of exhaustion. I mean, that sounds, it sounds like lunacy, doesn't it? But I, I know you will. I know I will. And every week we get to come and repent and by faith trust the one where we have healing. By faith in his name, the name of our servant Jesus, the name of our holy and righteous one, the name of the author of life, his name. His name brings us healing. Let's pray. God, we come to you. We come to you in, in and with hearts of repentance. And we, we, we give up our ways of unsatisfaction We give up our ways of exhaustion and we come and receive all from Jesus the rest that we crave. Father, we know that this takes a certain kind of death unto ourselves that is painful. But Father, the life that you give as we die to self and we realize and we are awakened to the fact that Jesus lives within us. Father, the life of freedom and the life full of the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, pour out of us and we realize this is what we've been missing. So Father, 
Here's our hearts again. Take them and seal them for your courts above. And please, for the sake of your children, come back. We long for you, as the prophets wrote long ago. We long for the time of eternal restoration. But Father, in the meantime, we have your presence with us and we will rest and then we'll get to work. So Father, fill us. Pray these things through Christ. Free from the law, oh happy condition, Jesus has bled and there is remission. Cursed by the law and bruised by the fall, grace has redeemed us once for all. to the cross.